Well, friends, the end is in sight (laughs) in our book. I checked. We are on our 64th sermon in Mark. We started Mark in January of 2016. We've had a few breaks and a few Sundays since then. And should the Lord lead us this way, we will be done by late October. We're not in a hurry. (laughs) But, in our five verses, you are going to be seeing evidence of Mark wrapping up his gospel account. Many believe that Mark wrote only up to Mark 16, verse 8, and we will discuss that when I... We get there, and I plan to preach through all of Mark 16 as well, but I mention all of this for really what amounts to the excitement of it, because this is the end of the proverbial movie, and in fact, not only do we see glimpses of Mark's narrative ending, but today we hit what most commentators call the climax of Mark, and it's very interesting, and it's also very paradoxical. And ironic. Why? Because these past few verses we've been covering the crux of our faith, the crucifixion. And it seems that the Holy Spirit, through Mark, staying true to his nature in our book so far, that is irony. <laughs> what, do we, what we don't expect, but it makes so much sense whenever you think about it. He's going to show us that the climax of his book is in the most unlikely place. A Roman centurion. One of the guys that you've probably grown quite a distaste for these past few weeks, as I've told you about their daily jobs and what they've done to Jesus. Today you're going to hear the climax, and if I could use the word this way, but you are going to hear the song of Mark. So stand with me, and let's pick up in verse 34. I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word. Let's read Mark chapter 15, verses 34 through 39. We covered verse 34 last week, but I want to get a little continuity and context in our scripture this week. Mark 15, starting with verse 34, says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemme sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, He is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, as we quietly prayed moments ago, I I told you that if I come to you thinking I have something to offer, would you take it from me because I want to hear your voice. Father, we all want to hear your voice. I just pray that you have prepared hearts to receive your word. Father, would you give us minds that are active in seeking the scriptures, like the Bereans, to see if these things are so? Would you give us hearts receptive to your word? Would you give us attention to your word? But most of all, would you give us transformation by the grace of Jesus Christ? 
coming in contact with our hearts. Father, if any of us have hard hearts or hearts of stone, would you give us a heart of flesh today? Father, would you save souls this very hour? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus, in some ways, has been mocked to death. It really starts back at the garden when Judas betrays him with a kiss. It's a kiss of mockery when a sign of affection and friendship is really the sign of betrayal and the sign given to those who would seek to arrest Jesus. The mockery continues at the high priest's house in the dead of night when Jesus accepts the claim of being the Messiah and the Son of God. They beat him and say, prophesy, who hit you? Then the whole persona of the king of the Jews takes on while Jesus discusses with Pilate. And when Jesus is flogged and prepped for his crucifixion, he's given a mock crown made of thorns, a mock robe, a mock scepter with a reed. The soldiers mock him by paying homage to him. Jesus is continually mocked and made sportive on the cross as the soldiers cast lots for his clothes. Passers-by deride him and continue to make fun of his words. Oh, you who said the temple would be destroyed and three days rebuilt, why don't you get off that cross? They put a charge on the cross that calls him the king of the Jews. They ridicule Jesus. He saved others, but he can't save himself. But the truth is, is that this mockery of Jesus stems from misunderstanding and mishearing him. Jesus said at the Lord's Supper that he would be betrayed. Because the scriptures speak of it, but woe to the man who would play the part of the betrayer. Though Jesus is accused that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God, he accepts it because he truly is. They misunderstood who the Christ would be, which ironically, Jesus is fulfilling exactly what he said the Christ would do, as he prophesied three times to be betrayed, rejected, mocked, condemned, executed, and rise again. And in fact, Mark 1465, when Jesus is struck in the dark and told to prophesy, Mark then tells us of Peter's denial, which happens to be a prophecy of Jesus that's coming true. This whole mockery of Jesus being the king of Jews is, the, is in fact another misunderstood truth. Jesus is the king of the Jews, just not the king that the Jews expected, nor the type of the king that the world is used to. The temple is destroyed and rebuilt in three days. The temple of God are the people of God, the body of Christ, so Paul tells us. And Jesus is saving everyone, and though he's not coming down off that cross, he's going to rise again, and in essence, saving himself after the horrible pain he hasn't been inflicted. All this mockery stems from mishearing Jesus and misunderstanding Jesus. And perhaps you have been here as a Christian I've been here. Most of the skeptical arguments against the faith and belief in Jesus come from mishearing and misunderstanding God. How is a good God wrathful? You ever have that question? How can God make people like this and then condemn them for it? And you've been given that hard question. How can a good God exist but allow such evil to take place? Mishearing and misunderstanding leading to mockery. This is Literally the case in our verses. 
We find Jesus saying at the ninth hour, crying out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. We camped quite a bit last week on verse 34. (laughs) And I've included it in here because I want you to note that Mark translates what Jesus is saying because it gives us a clue to what the bystanders literally misheard. Jesus says in Aramaic, he calls out for God, which is Eloi. And the bystanders hear Elijah, which would probably have just been Eli in Aramaic. More than misunderstand, the bystanders misheard. In this particular time in Jewish culture and history, there was a myth surrounding the character of Elijah in the Old Testament. We know in 2 Kings 2.11 that Elijah was still alive when he was taken to heaven. And the myth in Jesus' day and age is that Elijah would return during crises to protect and rescue righteous people. And so some bystanders believe that perhaps this is what Jesus is doing. Come down, Elijah, help a guy in need. Verse 36, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. This is more mockery. Let's prolong the guy's agony. He is calling Elijah, the man Jesus thinks he can still be vindicated. Let's see if his buddy Elijah does what he wants. Let's see if this is a righteous man after all. Let's see if we hung the wrong guy. Mind you, this is three hour, after three hours of darkness during midday. And Jesus has not even called Elijah. He's called out for God. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This is incredibly hard to wrap my head around. Let me tell you why. I'm going to take you to some other scriptures. John opens up his gospel account this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness And the darkness has not overcome it. We jump down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John opens up his book, and right out of the gate in his gospel account, that Jesus was in the beginning. That Jesus was not only with God in the beginning, but quite factual that, quote, the Word was God. That is a weighty statement. 
How do I know that John is referring to Jesus? We follow the logic. John says that in this word was life, and it was the light of men. And he picks up calling this word God the light in verse 9 and says it has come into the world. And then verse 14, he uses the word again, which is God, according to verse 1. And he says that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. John clearly states, I don't think you have a chance to argue if you read John's words in John 1.1 and 1.14. He clearly states that Jesus is God in the flesh. And it is God in the flesh that breathes his last on the cross. What? (laughs) If that's not a headache for you, let me give you one more passage of scripture. See if I can get this headache to come up. Paul uses similar language when he writes a young church in Colossae. Talking about God the Father in Colossians 1. Paul writes Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So through the beloved Son, you and I have redemption, and the forgiveness of sins. You know, some of us have been Christians for so long that we read the Bible and we just pass over these words. Oh, that's great. That's fine. Redemption. Loaded, beautiful terms. Don't you want redemption in your life? Don't you want complete forgiveness of sins in your life? In talking about God's beloved Son, Paul follows the theology of John and the words of Jesus throughout the gospel accounts. And so Paul says this about Jesus. He is the image, the original word meaning exact representation of its source. Like a mirror, Paul says that Jesus is the exact projection of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Some of you think I'm already taking a rabbit trail. I'm not. You'll find out why. But I do want to take a rabbit trail now. In this one verse, I would really encourage you to put it to memory, because this is my heartbeat for the church. And I believe it should be the heartbeat of Woodland Friends, and if I can be selfish, I believe it should be the heartbeat of Church Universal, that Jesus is the head of the body. Jesus is the beginning. He is the firstborn of the dead. You and I, if we are in him, then we will rise from the deadness of our sins, and quite literally we will rise from the grave after we die. And friends, the most important part of this verse is so practical. Some of you are like, I'm looking for practical. You're talking about theology. This is very practical. In everything, he might be preeminent. (laughs) Can you say that with me? In everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness, the sum, completion, totality, everything of God was pleased to dwell. 
And then in verse 20, I want you to note that Paul has, in the verses leading up to, has seemed to describe the relationship between God and the Father and God the Son in separate ways. But in verse 20, he's combined God and Jesus into a singular pronoun. He says, through him, through our God and Savior Jesus Christ, to reconcile to himself. You see, it's not just Jesus reconciling us to God. It is now God reconciling us to himself. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Whose cross? The cross of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Loaded stuff. I'm not saying the Trinity is the easiest doctrine. (laughs) And if we believe God's word at what it says, namely that Jesus is the word that was in the beginning, that became flesh and dwelt among us, and that Jesus is the exact representation of God, so that so much that in and for Jesus all things were made, that through him he reconciled the world to himself. It is he who here, in Mark 15, verse 37, uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. God died here. More hard for me to understand the Trinity, three in one, is God dying here. And what's I'm going, what I'm going to tell you next, look in any gospel account... You will not find a how. Or what does exactly this this mean? No author tells you if the Trinity just became a unity for a while. No no um no one tells you if they're the entire Godhead just shut down, <laughs> which I highly doubt. No one tells you how did life happen in these dark hours when God in the flesh was dead for the remainder of Friday, Saturday, and the first part of Sunday. But what Mark does tell us in more words or less, is the why. The why did God die? We continue in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There is a trigger word in this sentence that if you read Mark in its entirety, this might signify a culminating effect of Mark's book, coming to an ending. Here we find... a Greek word in the original language used only one other time in Mark. Kind of a significant open and closing word. It's the English word torn here. It is the same word in Mark 1.10 where Jesus is baptized. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the reason I bring all this up is because in these two verses, these two bookend verses, we are seeing symbolic realities that, that the kingdom of God is being torn open to humanity. Heaven is opening to earth. Um, Mark opens with uh, Jesus' baptism as a big event. He says the heavens are torn open, the spirit descends, showing us that this man, Jesus, is a connection between God and man. And now... We see as Jesus expires at the cross, the temple, the the symbolic place and the presence for God is now torn open, unleashing the presence of God for all of humanity. As one of my commentators puts it, at the baptism and death of Jesus, the heavenly and the earthly dwellings of God are opened to humanity. And so it's here we find the first why of the death of the God in flesh. The temple is proverbially open. Everyone has access to the presence of God through the torn veil 
of the temple. But I want to emphasize something in Hebrews real quick and then we'll move on. Hebrews 10, 14 through 20. For by a single offering, that is he who is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm going to use practical words again. I love that verse because it has both a sense of finality and a sense of growth. You and I, through Jesus, are being sanctified. We're being made more holy. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus, to use language from Romans. We're being made more like him. Jesus just does not save your soul from heaven. (laughs) He saves your entire life to be made more like him. Do you get that? That's the growth part. The finality part is that Jesus, in a single offering, has perfected us. You see, God is a God who sees the end and the process. Jesus' sacrifice perfects you. Jesus' sacrifice saves you and satisfies God wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly, done deal. So some of you might say, why then do we need perfecting if God has already sealed the deal? And I would ask, why not be perfected? To use an illustration that the Bible uses, if you adopt or have children, whenever I had Calvin, I just didn't have Calvin to have him. I wasn't going to leave him somewhere and just say, oh, it's nice that I had him, I'll move on with life. No, what do you do? You interact with them, you train them, you do life, you love them, and you are loved by them. God has adopted us through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. That's done, the papers were signed, we're his. Now he's doing life with us. And he's loving us, and we're loving him back. Do you understand that? The author in Hebrews says next, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And I'm going to stop there in the middle of a long sentence, because this is an answering of a why is God dying. Christ and Christ's body has become the temple. And I mean Christ's body in a physical sense, but also the metaphorical sense that Paul uses, that you and I are more than just the bride of Christ, but we are the body of Christ. I like the words in Hebrews 10.20, that Christ does not only offer the new way to God, but the living way to God. That word living with the same root word where Jesus says, I come that they might have life and life abundantly. This is what we're talking about, that adopting and having children as God has adopted us. He now wants to live with us and do life with us. This is going to sound weird to some of you, but if it does, it means you haven't been coming to my church that much. (laughs) Because I think I may have stressed this point before. Christ's death on the cross is not merely a you're saved for heaven point. In a singularity in life. The Christian life is not about heaven. Let me say that one more time. The Christian life is not about heaven. God wants a relationship with you right now. 
And there are things in life on planet Earth, that little dash between the birth and the death date on your tombstone, that God wants to do with you. And the beautiful thing is that we think about the Old Testament, and we think about bring these animals to sacrifice to do away with sin. Christ's sacrifice pays the price for all of sin. And though we, we repent and work with Christ daily to overcome sin and grow in him, Christ also has life abundantly to offer. His presence in us is living. His life with us is to be abundant. Amen? The rest of that sentence, where we stopped in Hebrews, gives a few ways of how a living walk and a living relationship with God is. We move on to the climax of our text. The climax of the entire book of Mark, which is so paradoxical because it comes from the mouth of a Roman centurion. And simply because it does, does not mean it is less Christ-centered. So Christ has died on the cross, the temple is torn, we hear this. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is another phrase that reveals to us that we're coming to the end of Mark's text. First we saw that word, torn for the second and last time in the verse before. But this phrase, truly, this man was the Son of God. Do any of you know how the Gospel account of Mark begins? Mark 1.1 says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Some of you don't have to think too hard to know that I preached an entire sermon on that one verse. And what is interesting is that in this verse, verse 39 is that this is really, besides Mark in one, this is really the first and only genuine confession of Jesus as the Son of God in the entire book of Mark. And it's not from a disciple, it's not from a Jewish person, it's from a Roman centurion. I say genuine confession because Jesus is called the Son of God elsewhere in the book of Mark. Besides Mark 1.1, he's told by unclean spirits from time to time that this is the Son of the Most High God. But in their own context, whether the demons believe or not, you know it's used to expose Jesus to public ridicule, and not out of a genuine heart who calls upon Jesus to be saved. What's also interesting is what this person saw, the Roman centurion. And I hope and pray it's what you have been seeing these last few weeks. All the Roman centurion saw was the death of Jesus on the cross. Sometimes human beings, especially non-believers, are hesitant to become believers because we have these funky thoughts, right? Like, I don't know, maybe if I existed and saw Jesus face to face and saw him do miracles and feed thousands and walk in water and all that, maybe I might have a better propensity to believe. Peter saw all that and he's hiding in a corner right now. Judas saw all that, and he's about to hang himself and not believe in the grace that's being offered here. In fact, Jesus says over and over and over that you and I have all we need to believe. In fact, you and I might be in the best position to most easily believe because we see the entire story. Thomas says to the disciples after Jesus rises, but Jesus has not revealed himself to Thomas yet. Thomas says, unless I poke my fingers in the wounds of Jesus, I will not believe. And when he has to eat his words, and he does it, Jesus asks him, Have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Right? That's most of us. I don't think any of you have seen Jesus. Thomas sees Jesus resurrected for himself, and then he believes after overcoming doubt. So we might say, well, Thomas has won over us. He saw the dead man alive again. That's more than we'll ever see. That's that, and that's just the evidence that we need. Jesus, again, would disagree. In Luke chapter 16, he tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You know the story. The rich man mistreats his servant, Lazarus. They both die. Lazarus ends up in heaven, and the rich man in hell. The rich man pleads that at least a dead relative of his can be released to go warn his family. He is told, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus is saying, God's word is enough. Thankfully, Thomas was convinced after seeing Jesus. But Matthew 28, verse 17, proves Jesus' point that he made in the rich man and Lazarus, that even those looking upon the resurrected Jesus, still some doubted. So skeptics have to face the fact that even among Jesus' inner circle, and even among those who walked and talked with Jesus, there were doubters, unconvinced by his standing right before them. Jesus says that all people need are the laws and prophets. That will convince their hearts more than a resurrected man. But you know what the centurion was convinced by? The death of Jesus. Jesus has not even resurrected yet. And I would say that Mark gives us, yes, an exciting account of the death of Jesus. Darkness over the land for three hours. The centurion is not likely with an eye shot of the temple curtain tearing, but other gospel accounts tells us that there is an earthquake. My point is, is that Jesus is a dying man on the cross, yelling out phrases and letting out a dying breath. And this centurion has not seen Jesus heal people, raise the dead, walk on water, or other miracles. Jesus just submitted himself to death going to the grave, believing himself to be the Son of God and the Christ. And when he dies, this man believes. Isn't that amazing to anyone else? You ever stop to think about that this is what we believe in? Luke 16 considers the scriptures to be enough to convince people of who Jesus is and, <clears throat> and to be worthy enough to get faith and trust in God to save them. But elsewhere... We see Jesus say something about what he considers to be worthy evidence to find people to believe in him. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We've seen this in Mark as well, but Mark doesn't tell us the answer that Jesus gives as Matthew does. The point of this, though, is not so much a genuine seeking, but a taunting on behalf of the scribes and Pharisees. What do you got for us, Jesus? Give us your best. <laughs> Convince us of who you are. Show us your wonders so we might believe. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Do you hear that? Do you know that, see that, and feel that? Jesus wants genuine faith. Not faith that relies on gimmicks and silly validation. Blessed is he who believes but does not see me. Jesus said it is evil and adulterous to seek for signs, wonders, and miracles. It's petty. And really, it's a faith, if you could even call it that, that's selfish. Let me describe it to you this way. I'll believe only so long as God keeps proving himself, because it's all about me here. 
The world and everything in it is mine to observe, mine to validate, mine to check off as what I consider to be true and untrue, real and unreal, because I'm the ultimate authority. And so if God proves to me his existence in the way I want him to, then I will be convinced and check off his existence. That doesn't sound selfish at all, I know. Paul does a great job in Romans 1 saying, everybody has everything they need to know that God exists. Just look at creation. Look at the universe. How is everything in the universe going at its uninterrupted and greatly ordered pace? There seems to be an intelligence behind it. God exists. What else do you need? But like Jesus gives grace to Thomas, Jesus gives grace to these Pharisees and scribes. He's going to give them a sign. He says, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he goes on to explain that Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights. So Jesus will be in the belly of the earth. And it is here that we see Jesus say, if you want a sign and wonder to prove who I am, look no further than the cross. And a Roman centurion, not a Pharisee or a scribe who knew the scripture forwards and backwards, not a disciple who walked with Jesus for three years, but a Roman centurion, one who may have nailed Jesus to the cross only hours prior, one who may have bargained for Jesus' clothes, one who maybe just came on duty. In his last breath, this Roman centurion says, truly, this man was the Son of God. What convinced this Roman centurion that Jesus was the Son of God? I propose this. What Jesus did here is so foreign and so unworldly. It's completely and totally not of this world. Jesus has just submitted himself to the most ghastly of deaths, voluntarily, without fighting, come in an utter, intentional, self-imposed weakness. He has given himself to this death. He has given himself to suffering, and in doing so, Every word he spoke was ones of genuine belief that the fact that he was doing this for humanity and that he does have a relationship with the Father. Listen to this. This cannot be manufactured. No man on planet Earth would ever voluntarily give himself to this kind of torture, shame, and humiliation that Jesus suffered and maintain with complete belief and genuineness within himself a relationship with the Father. So much so that they would have the power to keep up any supposed facade of a sound mind and a desire to be with the Father and a desire to save humanity. And so the centurion, likely familiar with Roman gods and goddesses and so forth, he would say, you know, the Roman gods and goddesses would never submit themselves to this kind of torture. Every story about them suggests that they are prideful and powerful. And the Roman centurion looks upon the dead, visible body of God and thinks to himself, there is, this is so outworldly. It has to be God. My gods and goddesses are really just puffed up versions of humans. They have superpowers and cosmic control. But like humans, they're sinful, like the rest of us. Proud and power hungry. They would be considered foolish if they offered to submit themselves to this. But this is a man who was in sound mind had a relationship with his father, and with his dying breath, asked for forgiveness of those who beat him. And he just humbly and peaceably and submissively gave himself for us. Truly this man was the Son of God. As we end on this man's confession and thread all this together, I want you to see the amazing reality that we have been made access to God. 
You and I are citizens and saints in a living, breathing kingdom of God. It's been given to us right here. The heavens tore open, the temple's been torn open, and to be granted access to do what the centurion did here, believe, believe that your sins are forgiven, believe that God made you, God has saved you, and that God adopts us as his children, and that God wants to do life with his children. I am reminded of Jesus' prophecy. This will illustrate my closing remark. Back in Mark 14, you remember each and every disciple drinks the cup and eats the bread, signifying their covenant and their entrance into a covenant with Jesus. They're signifying their belief in him. They go out and they sing a hymn, as was customary on Passover, and then Jesus gives the ironic news to all these disciples who just covenanted with him. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What? That's not a great way to begin our relationship, Jesus. You basically accuse us, you do it in the guise of prophecy, that we're not going to be loyal disciples. Nevertheless, verse 50, minutes, if not an hour or so later, they all left Jesus and fled. But we go back to that prophetic accusation. What does Jesus say right after that? But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's quick. The part about Jesus forgiving each and every disciple isn't even voiced. The point, urgency and life. Urgency. Friends, if it's not been abundantly clear in our Bible perusing today, this, what Jesus is doing, ends it. He does away with sin. He saves you. He adopts you. And whatever the enemy would say to you, whether it be Satan or the flesh, he would love for us to be hung proverbially on the end of Mark 14.27 or Mark 14.50. That is, Jesus catches us red-handed. We know we're sinners, so we're hung up on our sin. Meanwhile, access to the kingdom means Mark 14.28, means that Jesus is going ahead of us, means that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of urgency. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of life that is living and active, and we have work to do. It means that Jesus saved you from your sin. So when you sin, confess, and repent, I say with all love and respect for you, get over it. Whenever you confess and repent, get over it. Go back to work. Go back to life in the kingdom. I'm not saying treat that lightly. I'm saying get over it. This was 2,000 years ago when the curtain tore open. What that means for me is that I'm... 28 years into a life where a kingdom of citizens and saints in God's kingdom are by his grace busy with life abundantly under the headship of King Jesus. What am I doing? Some of you are a little bit older than me, just a little bit. So what are you doing? If you're unsaved and you're waiting for the proper evidence to be convinced, get over yourself. You've been given the scriptures. You've been given the sign of Jonah. You have all the evidence you need. I pray that the Holy Spirit reveals in your heart and mind that Jesus is who he says he is. Why? Just so God can be right and I can be right and you can be wrong? No. Because if you're like me, you are in desperate need of a Savior. Life abundantly does not happen outside of Jesus. Right now you're living day to day. And I truly pray that God reveals to you the emptiness of life without him. You have not found ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. And the things that you think bring you those things will be found wanting on your deathbed. I know that that's a grim picture, because it is. That's why there's Jesus. 
If you are saved, but you're stagnant, and lo and behold, you realize you're still messing around with sin. You're in the kingdom of God. You have access to his power. Overcome sin and get busy with him in life abundantly. What Jesus does at the cross does away with sins past, present, and future. And by sins future, I mean sins that you might happen to commit in the future, but also Jesus' power so that we might not sin in the future, but live under the life of the dominion of his grace by his spirit. Friends, we've come to the cross. Let's get urgent with kingdom life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I realize that this message was long, but I pray that faithful listeners will find that you have spoken to them. And more than that, I pray that your grace is so strong and overpowering that they can't help but obey what you have said to them. Not because that I think I'm right, or I know I'm right, but because my heart and your heart hurts for them, because you so desperately want to give them life abundantly. You so desperately want to take them out of the shadows of darkness and into the light of your Son, of our Savior of our God. Father, for those of us who say that we are believers, but we realize after today that we have been living stagnantly, that we've been burdened by sin, our sin, or sin done to us, and that we find reasons and excuses to not be active in your kingdom, to not partake of life abundantly, I pray that you would give the grace of repentance for all of us who need to repent that we would be more like your son Jesus, and that we would be active in the joy and the work of building your kingdom. Father, much how an earthly dad gives tools to his toddlers, that you have given us tools, and we're not toddlers, and we do have work to do. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the joy it is to work with you, the joy to be worked by you through us. So, Father, we love you, and we thank you, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.